Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Danger from Within, with a message titled, The Patience of the Lord. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Peter's been answering the scoffers. Where's the promise of his coming, they say. All things are going on as before, they say. There's no reason to concern oneself about the second coming of the Lord, they say. Don't worry about judgment. Don't worry about Christian virtues. Just use your spirituality to satisfy your lower desires and get what you want out of life right now. Now, of course, all that sounds very contemporary, especially among those who argue that, you know, God's going to give you everything you want and give it to you right now, if only you had the right kind of faith. Then, you know, you get heaven on earth and all your troubles will disappear and you get the life you always wanted. You know, of course, in real biblical terms, indeed, in Peter's thinking, the life we have always wanted, it's not here on earth. Read 1 Peter 1, verse 4, where he speaks of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's where our inheritance lies, not here on earth. Look, hoping for the future joy that awaits us doesn't diminish the importance of living in the present it never has. But if we live for today, we diminish the hope of eternity. People whose religion is earthbound are always people who eventually give up on virtue and holy living. And that's because things that demand sacrifice and demand we stand against the prevailing streams of thought in our day, and that we set our sights on the things that are above, not on the things of earth, as Paul so eloquently stated in Colossians 3 verse 2. You see, a clear vision of our unfading inheritance makes us bold, especially when this world would threaten us or want to seduce us to follow its ways. In response, Peter has been pointing us, both in his first letter and in the second one, to the inheritance that awaits us. We'll have our best life then, and so we await our Savior from there. And then the critic responds, where's the sign of his coming? things that you always talk about. All things have gone on as always. And in response, Peter has said, I mean, look at history. God has intervened in the past. The very fact that there's a creation rather than nothing tells us that God intervenes. But Peter's not done. So we come to today's passage. I'm reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So let's start with verse 8. Peter is quoting Psalm 90, verse 4. So let's read that verse in context, Psalm 92 to 4. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You know, the psalm from which Peter is quoting is a psalm of Moses. I mean, it's most likely written when Moses was an old man. And in that psalm, Moses considers the brevity of life up against the eternal nature of God. 
Indeed, the oldest of the mountains, or as we might put it today, the oldest geological formation on earth is as yesterday or as a brief watch in the night. The ancients, you know, limited the night watch to about four hours. And if you're standing on top of a tower staring into the dark at night, I mean, looking for the possibility of an approaching enemy, it might be that all that inactivity staring into the dark will cause you to fall asleep and then the enemy gets an advantage. And so because of that, night watches were short, a limited duration. Well, God views the oldest geological formations on earth as we might view a night watch, says Moses. And Peter knows that psalm very well, and he's applying it to the second coming of Jesus. See, the scoffers were saying, it's been so long since the promise was made that the end of the age would arrive, that the Messiah or Jesus would return, and that the righteous would receive their reward, and that the wicked would be judged. It's been so long. But, says Peter, the delay that you're talking about only seems like a long time from your perspective. If we can even begin to grasp the concept of an eternal God, we're going to see that it's a mere blink of an eye. But here's where Peter applies this concept differently than Moses did. Moses used the truth of the eternality of God and makes the case that given the brevity of life, we should make God our refuge, not the things of earth that soon pass away. Now, Peter uses the same truth and applies it differently. Peter's making the point that the Lord, and here he means the Lord Jesus, is not slow in keeping his promise. And Jesus doesn't think it's been a long time at all. And given that we are now reading this text some, you know, 2,000 years after Peter wrote it, I mean, Peter would say something like that. I mean, what's 2,000 years to the eternal Christ? It's nothing. It's like two days or like a short watch in the night. But Peter says more. He says the reason the delay from our perspective seems so long, is that God is patient. And then he adds one more important feature. He's not willing that any should perish. You know, perhaps Peter's thinking about what God had said to Abraham. You know, in Genesis 15, 16, it records God speaking to Abraham, telling him that his descendants would not immediately inherit the promised land. The Amorites were living there at the time, and God said that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete or had reached its full measure. And that gives us an insight into God's character, doesn't it? God is patient. That's why Jesus hasn't returned yet. He's not willing that any should perish. God's not indifferent to human sin, but he's not delayed the judgment because he's indifferent. He's delayed it because he doesn't want people to perish. So stop and consider what's being said. Peter's not teaching universalism. He's not saying, you know, God's going to wait until everyone repents. Rather, just like the sin of the Amorites, God's waiting, giving enough time for people to repent. Now, it's difficult to know exactly how Peter means it here. Is he saying that God is giving every person enough time to repent? Now, if that's what he were saying, then we might conclude that Jesus is never going to return because of the nature of things. You know, some will always be young and just starting out in life on this earth, and some will be old, having lived out their lives, having every opportunity to repent. See, whenever Christ comes back, some are going to argue, they didn't have time to repent or to reconsider their ways. And so we have to conclude that Peter could not have meant that God is giving every human being a time to repent. I tend to understand this passage like I understand the promise made to Abraham. Your descendants won't come back to this place until the societal sin of the Amorites reaches its full measure. And I tend to think that's what Peter means in verse 9. 
God will provide enough time for the entire human race to consider their rebellion against God and allow for every avenue of rebellion to be thoroughly explored. And all the while, God will continue to give opportunities for the human race to turn back to their creator. And so God sends prophets and evangelists and teachers and pastors and missionaries, all with the cry, turn from wickedness and live. And all the while, God is patiently waiting even while he knows that the greater part of the human race won't repent. But here we see the love of God on full display. Look, humanity didn't earn the right for mercy. God offers it by grace. Now, we note before we leave verse 8 that verse 8 has been abused by some. I mean, there are those in history who have argued that the world would last for as many thousands of years as there were days of creation, namely, that the world would last 7,000 years. And then using the dating system that some have, that is, that there is 2,000 years from creation to Abraham and another 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, and then still another 2,000 years from Christ to the present, which still leaves another, you know, 1,000 years until the millennium. And there you have it, seven days of creation, 7,000 years of the history of the earth until Christ comes. Now, if you've never heard that before, (laughs) let me apologize for even bringing it up. But let's also remember that verse 8 says nothing of that kind. The verse is not telling us that the second coming of Jesus will come after 7,000 years. The Bible makes it very clear. We are not to speculate about when Jesus will come. Rather, we are to be certain that he will come. And then in verse 9, Peter says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That is, the Lord may be patient, but his patience is not inexhaustible. There comes a day when his patience ends. Then, says Peter, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And here Peter is simply repeating what he heard Jesus say. Matthew 24, 43 to 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let the house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. To the one who discounts the day of the Lord, that day will come most unexpectedly. It's like a person who didn't think a burglary could ever happen to him. He took no precautions until it occurred. Want access to all your favorite Back to the Bible content right at your fingertips? Then be sure to check out our free app, There you can listen to your favorite audio messages, read the Dr. John and Company blog, watch video sermons from Dr. John, and even access a digital Bible. Perfect for on the go. We strive to make Bible teaching and engagement resources as easily accessible as possible to as many people in as many ways, both nationally and internationally. To download the Back to the Bible Canada app at absolutely no cost to you, simply visit your app store and search Back to the Bible Canada. And for more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And on behalf of the whole ministry team, thank you. It's your support that allows us to make Bible teaching resources such as these possible. Peter's been explaining the events that accompany the coming of the Lord. 
First, he says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and the earth and all that is done in it will be exposed. So notice that three things will happen after the Lord returns. First, the heavens will pass away with a roar. And our translation says they will pass away. And the Greek has a word that means they will cease to exist. Other translations say they will disappear. And Peter might have been thinking of Isaiah 34, verse 4, which says, All the host of heaven will rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Later, after Peter wrote, John would write in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 14, The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Peter says when that happens, it will make a sound. The word roar refers to a rushing sound made by something that's passing swiftly through the air. The word was sometimes used to describe a, you know, a whizzing arrow as it whizzes by, or the sound that would be made by the rush of wings. Uh, But I think Tom Schreiner had it right when he said it means the crackling sound of fire, suddenly hissing and banging, and then the heavenly bodies coming to an end. The second thing that's going to occur, Peter says, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the word translated heavenly bodies is a Greek word. The Greeks used to describe the materials from which the universe was composed. And we might think of it as saying all the natural substances that make up the created order. I mean, the Greeks thought of the building blocks or the basics out of which everything was made. And these, says Peter, are going to dissolve. Now, I've often wondered about this because of something the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Let me read the entire passage, but focus on that last line. For by him all things were made, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and here it is, in him all things hold together. I take that passage to mean that the reason the universe holds together and continues to function the way it does, with what we now call the consistent and observable laws of science, well, that's because, according to our Bible, that moment by moment, Jesus wills that it should be that way. Now then, in the end of the day, in the end of all things, he will no longer will for it to be that way. And the elements that function so reliably will simply dissolve and fly apart and no longer adhere to one another. And the third and last phrase that Peter uses is as follows. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, the NIV says it will be laid bare. And a literal translation would say the earth and the works in it shall be found. Strange phrase. And translators have struggled as to how to translate that. If the earth is to be found, found by whom? And the answer seems to be that it's going to be found by God. That is, everything that is ever done on this earth, everything we thought was significant and insignificant, everything that was observed and the things human beings took no notice of whatsoever, everything, the details, large and small, will be thoroughly examined by God, laid bare, made visible, found. And that interpretation, I think, fits well with Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 27, that the things that are said secretly will one day be shouted from the housetops. You know, for us who read this, we need to ask, when exactly will these things be and and what does it mean? Now, these are two questions and they deserve an answer. So let's see if I can give an answer. When Christ returns, the nations of the earth gather to fight against him. 
They don't want him to reclaim his own. The trumpet has sounded. The saints have been caught up to meet him in the air. Christ returns to the earth, and he destroys rebel armies of the earth with the blast of his nostrils. They're consumed and immediately go to the place of torment where they await the final judgment. Now, if my understanding of end times is right, after those events will follow the 1,000-year reign of Christ, an event that's often been called the millennium. That will be Christ's reign on this earth. He reigns for 1,000 years, and after that, Satan will be released from his imprisonment. He will deceive the nations, and they will immediately suffer defeat from Christ. And after this comes the final judgment. In Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled, and no place was found for them. See, it is at this very moment, at the great white throne, when the nations and every single human being is summoned to judgment, comes this time of the fiery destruction of all things. It will be awe-inspiring. The people before the judgment throne will be shaken. See, the second question is, what does this mean? And to that question, Peter provides an answer. So let's read 2 Peter 3, 11 to 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter's making three points here. And the first is the very point that the false teachers of his day were ignoring. Remember, he's been saying that the false teachers were exploiting their hearers with false words. He said they had eyes full of adultery, that they themselves were insatiable for sin, that they were encouraging their followers to have the same attitude that they had. And that's why they were mocking the day of the Lord. It won't happen, they said. But Peter's now speaking to the people of God, and not to those who have followed the false teachers. If you're looking for your imperishable reward and are anticipating the coming of the Lord, what sort of people ought you to be? Well, for one, you're not to collapse into despair. Neither are you to say, well, you know, if everything's going to burn anyway, who cares, you know, how I treat the environment or who cares how I live? Hoping for the world to come never inspires a cavalier attitude. Let me put it in theological terms. Eschatology and ethics are tied together. Or in everyday words, what I hope for and how I live right now, that's part of one package. I can never divorce those two things. Or let me try it another way. I think Peter might have said it this way. Since it's all going to burn, here's how you're going to live. Make virtue your aim. Add to that a knowledge of God. Practice self-control over your sinful impulses. Make up your mind that you're going to persevere in these things all the way until your death or until Christ returns. Be godly. Live for the truth that God is in everything you do. Love the brothers and sisters in Christ and seek to show love of all people. See, Peter is saying, be holy. Exude the presence of God. Live lives of holiness and godliness. Second, did you know that Peter spoke of both waiting for the coming of Christ, but also hastening the coming of Christ? How do we do that? And yet Peter's very clear. We can hasten the coming of Christ. And the answer to how that is done must have something to do with Peter's earlier statement that God has compassion on the lost. He doesn't want them to perish, as they are surely doing now. See, I think Peter has in mind Jesus' teaching that's found in Matthew 24, verse 14. 
that this gospel must first be preached to all nations, then the end will come. So as believers are not only to live holy lives, they're also to take our Lord at his word. We're to endeavor to make the gospel known both home and abroad. We seek to build gospel-centered, outreach-oriented churches, as well as being involved in a global conspiracy to bring the good news of Jesus to every people, language, race, and tribe of this earth. We need to take this to heart. Are you satisfied if Jesus' coming is delayed? I, I hope not. Are you satisfied that a great part of the world still doesn't have a gospel-centered church in their community, so they have no opportunity to hear and to repent? If that state of affairs is unsatisfactory to you, then ask God what you and your church might do, and then by all means, hasten the coming of Jesus. And finally, Peter speaks of something that he left hanging until now. Yeah, the elements will be dissolved. Yeah, the stars are going to fall from the sky. Yeah, it's all going to burn. But he says, we are waiting and anticipating and longing for the day when there's a new heavens and a new earth. And then he adds, where righteousness dwells. See, one day, the effects of sin will finally be done away with. One day, disease and war and death and lying, slander, revenge, hatred, the breaking of God's laws, all that's going to end. One day, you who hope in Christ will never again have to fight and struggle with the flesh or your impulse to sin. Righteousness will reign in every corner of our lives and in every corner of every relationship we share and in every corner of the world and in every corner of the universe. Isaiah knew that day would come when he said in Isaiah 11 verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Yeah, God's patient. He awaits for the full number to come in. But the day will surely come when righteousness reigns. Thanks for your message, John. You know, it makes me wonder, how does our anticipation of the coming of the Lord impact how we ought to live? Yeah, it, it has to impact the way that we live because if we know for a certain that, you know, all of history is moving to a defined point so that history has meaning, our own individual lives have meaning, uh, there are no random throwaway events, I don't simply waste my time, I'm spending my time for eternity. Uh, there is a judgment coming, which is a judgment unto rewards, and I want to maximize my joy in eternity. I mean, all of these kind of things will have a, a huge impact as I think about how I should live my life today, the decisions that I make, and the kind of things that I find myself involved in. So I think much in every way. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Danger From Within, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. In our society, the topic of money is often regarded as taboo. However, God in His Word certainly doesn't keep quiet on the matter, and He's provided us with an abundance of financial direction. On that note, we're thrilled to offer you our newest resource, a short booklet called 10 Questions About Money Matters, based on Dr. John's audio series, God and Money. This booklet addresses 10 common money-related concerns from a biblical perspective, some insight to help better bring glory to God with our resources. Because we feel this topic is so important to your spiritual walk, we want to offer you this resource free for the whole month of August. So 
Simply request your copy today. Or if you'd like to offer a gift to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.